Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out and what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as a vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look towards the north. So I looked, and in the north entrance, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Here ends the reading. Morning, everyone. Why don't you stand up and uh, say hello to someone you haven't said hello to or move around, uh, move your feet. I've actually got uh, a diagram that's coming around which, uh, if I was thinking about it, should have been here before I got here, but uh, thinking is not always my best. So. There will be a diagram that comes on the screen, I think, uh, and it will come on. And they've given me a laser pointer, which uh, I'll be careful not to go near any aircraft with. There it is. Yes. I did promise the judge that. So that was a joke, sorry. <laughs> uh, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we do ask that as we turn to your word, you would help us, lead us, uh, encourage us, strengthen us, uh, teach us, mould us, shape us. May we know, know what you, please tell us what you want us to hear today. Please make your word plain. Please make me plain and uh, to be understood and to keep me from error, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, everyone in uh, Zoom land. So, uh, there you are. Uh, I once had the terrible experience of sitting with uh, some people uh, who uh, were telling me about the pain that they'd had in their family. Uh, it was in my first uh, church that I was, so it was probably in 1995, I think, and uh, these parents were telling me about the heartache of when they had to tell one of their children, and when I say children, they were an adult at this stage, where they had to say one of the adults, we need you to move out. We need you to leave for the sake of our family, for the sake of our marriage. We can't take this anymore. We need you to go. And uh, 
They spoke about that and they would still, still cry about that. They're still filled with a lot of anguish. I mean, obviously, that was, that was just the start of something that had happened a while ago. And if you know, once you're a parent, then you're always a parent. And they still had lots of struggles and how that had gone on. But how they were able to at least keep their marriage together, keep functioning because things had gotten so bad. But it didn't, they couldn't hide the anguish, the sleepless nights, the terrible inner turmoil that, and torment that they went through and they, they still went through in some way. When we come to today's sermon, we're going to find that is effectively what God says to Israel. Uh, what God does to Israel in this passage. It's a repeated idea again and again in the first half of the book of Ezekiel, and it's hard to hear. I need to warn you, it's a little bit hard to hear, but hang in with there with me. Uh, the first point I want to say, that, as I've probably given hint to, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 23, it's sort of very repetitive because it's a way that God keeps telling Israel the same thing. He keeps saying, your sin is more than I can take. Your rebelliousness is beyond the pale. You are punished for what you have done. And uh, your disobedience will not be tolerated anymore. It's, uh, it's like chapter 3 to 23, you keep reading similar, the same message said again and again. And it's a bit like those sporting replays on TV, which come from all sorts of different angles, giving you an idea of something. But we're honing in on chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 1 to 6 in particular which is the first horror, which is our second point. Ezekiel sees a vision in which he is taken on a guide, guided tour of the temple. And as you see, this is my, uh, one could say, pathetic attempt at uh, drawing a very, what do you call that when you draw the top like that of a drawing? Is it the plan? The plan view. Is that right? The plan. I almost said that. Anyway, so... The same vision, uh, this is a guided tour, and it goes from chapter 8 to 11. And the same vision of the Lord is taking Ezekiel on this tour. The vision that we saw last week is now taking Ezekiel to it. It's an honest impression of what the temple looked like. It's sort of my impression, my, my drawing of an artist's impression, but... Uh, I didn't have the rights to show those other drawings, so I didn't do that. <clears throat> Ezekiel is taken by the Lord to see what's happening, a tour of the temple, and he's taken to point one. Jeez, a lot of power in that, isn't he? He's taken to there on your little diagram, and there he's shown an idol set up right there. Now, Exodus 20 is just an example of one passage which might say, you shall have no gods beside me. And there at point one, Ezekiel is shown and said this in verse 6, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here. 
things that will drive me far away from my sanctuary. And in one sense, there's God's sanctuary. Second horror, at the entrance of the temple, verse 7 tells us there's a door to the court. We don't actually know where this door is or how it is. That's why it's actually not numbered on here, which is quite disappointing when you've got a number. But anyway, it, we don't actually know where it is. But inside this wall is a storeroom. It's hidden because what's done in there is secret. Have you ever kept a secret from your parents? Kids don't answer this. I used to live with lots of secrets, uh, I think. That's what you do when you're, that's what I did when I was a kid. Not a good thing to do. Don't trust me. Don't follow me. But this is what they're doing. They're doing something in secret. Verse 10, the second horror. I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the wall all kinds of crawling things, unclean animals and the idols of Israel. And in front of them stood 70 elders of Israel. Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. Verse 12b says, the elders say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. In this room is a room full of pagan idols and worship. Loathsome animals are all over the place. It's not that Israel doesn't like animals. They're not animal haters. What it is is they are gods. Our archaeology from this part of the world is full of these type of little false gods. But worse than all that is he sees 70 men who are bowing down and worshipping. And who are they? They're not just 70 random people, not, they're all men. They're actually elders of Israel, the heads of the community. And among them is Jezaniah, son of Shaphan, in verse 11. Now, jo who is Josiah? Does anyone remember who Josiah was? We do, don't we? King Josiah, he was uh, the boy king uh, who tried to clean up and reform Israel's worship. 2 Kings chapter 22 and onwards you see that. Josiah died tragically in 609 and with Josiah was a man named Shaphan. Here, 20 years later, a man who was associated with those reforms is the son. Sorry, 20 years later, one of the sons of a man associated with Josiah's drastic reforms to get them back to God, here is a son of one of those men, Jezaniah. And it adds a, a special taste to the horror. It only took 20 years for them to go from Josiah's reforms to back to the way that they were. And then Ezekiel has shown us third horror, which 
confusingly is 0.3, uh, sorry, chapter, our third horror, sorry, is position two on your map. There you go. At the north gate, Ezekiel is brought there and there he sees a group of women this time crying. They are mourning for Tammuz, we're told, T-A-M-M-U-Z. Tammuz, we know from archaeology, is a Sumerian god of vegetation. Uh, the idea was, uh, uh, so it's a Mesopotamian deity. We're talking about Iraq, modern-day Iraq is something like that. Tammuz died in August, oh, sorry, in autumn, and then he went to the underworld and he spent time there, and then in spring you celebrated his resurrection and that old thing where uh, resurrection and spring comes around is a lot of fertility rites. And when, when Keith mentions fertility rites, he then has to own up to the fact that that means sexual worship in some ways. Now, I don't know if you've read the Bible much, but you'll know that's not really part of the way God calls his people to worship. Thoroughly pagan, thoroughly opposite the purity that God has called his people to. These women are mourning and they're in the death of him because they're involved in the worship of Tammuz, this fertility God who will bring in the spring new growth. It's a Mesopotamian deity. Again, Ezekiel has shown the people's hearts are totally corrupt. They've deserted God, the God who has done so much for him. He's then shown a fourth horror, which confusingly is at point three. The fourth horror is at point three. I hate that, but anyway. At the inner court of the temple, at the entrance there, he sees 25 men. So point three is actually the entranceway. And at the entrance to the temple, he sees 25 men who are, who are out in the open and they are bowing to the east. So now where's north on this diagram? Oh, there. That's it. So that's north. So they're, they're facing this way. Is that right? That east? That's east. Yeah, they're facing that way. Uh, and the east has something to do. Anyone know anything about the east and the sun? What happens? Oh, that's where it rises. That's right. Thank you. Uh, I actually, if you put, turn me around, I have no idea where I am. It's east, west, north. Yeah. They are worshipping the sun. That's why they're faced there, because... That's where the sun comes from, rises from. The men, 25 men, out in the open in complete rejection of who they are, have their backs. You see that? There's the temple here, and they're facing that way. So they have their backs to the temple where God was thought to be. God was thought to dwell here in the inner sanctum. They're worshipping the sun right out the front of the place where God's presence was. 
And it says in verse 17, they put the branch to their nose. And the truth is we actually don't know what that means. But we do have pictures of Assyrians doing exactly the same thing from archaeology. All we can say is that that is no good. Verse 17b is, makes that clear. Must they also fill the land with violence, continually provoking me to anger? Ezekiel is told they're so far against me. They so worship everything else. Their faith away from me instead of towards me. They've gone away from me instead of to me, that they have fulfilled and lost their ways. They've filled this land with violence, with corruption, and God is angry. Everywhere Ezekiel goes, every room he is taken to, he sees the worship of false gods. It's a bit like a faithless marriage partner who has betrayed the marriage and made sure that acts of betrayal have happened in all parts of the house. Israel has utterly destroyed, utterly betrayed Yahweh. And so two things will happen, says chapter 9. Bloody judgment will fall. Their actions are no longer to be tolerated. Secondly, Ezekiel sees, and this is the thing which actually people find rather hard to hear, Ezekiel sees the cloud of glory, the glory of God, go out, up, and out of the temple. Literally, God has gone. Literally, God has left the building. You'll see it with me. First, if you go to chapter 10, verse 4, the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim. Where is the cherubim? It's here in the Holy of Holies. Did you see uh, Raiders of the Lost? The cherubim are on top of that ark. The glory of the Lord froze from above and moved above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. What's a threshold? An entry. That's right. So what we're saying is the vision that Ezekiel and we looked at yes last week comes to the inner sanctum, to the Holy of Holies, and he takes the ark, God lifting up the ark, and he's on his way out. The threshold is a very special place in the temple. He's reached there, and we see in verse 18, the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. He, He crossed it quite easily and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings, rose from the ground as they went, and the wheels went with them. The vision stopped at the entrance at the east gate of the Lord's house. The glory of God of Israel was above them. I want you to jump to 1123 with me, chapter 11, verse 23. 
The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. It's like that classic scene where that spouse comes home. They find what's happened. They're, betray they're betraying faithless partner, husband, wife, and they pack their bags and they leave. Literally, the vision we saw comes into the temple, picks up the ark, takes it, and moves out and away. It's actually pretty hard to read. It's pretty hard to hear. It's pretty hard to explain. These are dark pages. God's stomach is churning. He's agonising over Israel's sin. They're pages full of passion and disgust for Israel has turned God's heart out, which is a strange way to talk about God, but it is the way it's being talked about. It, these are chapters which vividly tell us how terrible sin is and what God does with it. Our Heavenly Father can't be in the presence of sin. Our God can't tolerate it. There is nothing bad within him. He is good. And so it's no surprise that after a while he picks up and he leaves to the east. So, yeah. It's a shocking thing. It's a shocking thing for Ezekiel to see. It's a shocking message for him to have to give that literally God has left the building. It's a terrible thing to have to say. It was something that his hearers could not hear. But Ezekiel knew what that meant. And he knew as a priest the significance of God's presence leaving his temple. What a terrible thing sin is. How shocking it is to talk about. Chapters 24 onwards changes in the book. It changes its focus to a message where what will God has, will do with this. For the book does not finish at chapter 23. That's not the end of the story. What will God do? Before we get to that, I just wanted you to think about and realise what does it mean for Jesus, God made flesh? What does it mean for him to come to our world? The temple was filled with all sorts of nothing. <laughs> the temple was filled with all sorts of horrors. And shock, the temple had become a place of horror. Our world is a place of horror. When Jesus came into our world, he was born into a world which was the same world with a people that were hard, who rejected him. God thought sin so serious as we will find and it's fulfilled and he thought, I will send Jesus. God must do this himself. 
He gave Jesus to us because sin was that serious. He gave Jesus because Jesus only could die for sin. He gave Jesus because the punishment which our world deserved, which we deserve, was poured out on him. Jesus, who did no wrong, died for his people. He died for our world, though the world rejected him. Ezekiel chapter 3 to 23 tells us again and again how serious sin is and how serious we should be about it. But God removed his presence from the temple. We see that here. It was a sign of God's final rejection, what was happening there. But it would be uttering the message of what God would do with his people and how he would still fulfill his promises in Abraham, in Moses, in David, and how he would fulfill those promises in the person of Jesus. Jesus came into our world despite what it is like. That famous verse, Jesus died for even those who were against him. Your enemies. He came, though once we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus' death on the cross brought us back into God's presence. Where God dwelled amongst his people here, he had to leave. So God came to get us and to bring us into his presence. And Jesus' death on the cross wasn't the end of that, was it? Because he rose again to life. And then he said this. I know you did, you did John for a long time, so I know you love it. John 14. If you love me, you obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you in the person of Jesus. I will come to you. God has not removed his presence from us, but actually done something more wonderful. He's made us his forever. He's reconciled us back to God. He took our sins. He took them away from us and he gave us his righteousness, totally undeserved. And he made his presence not in temples or in buildings we build, but in us. Sorry to point. It's rude to point, isn't it? Sorry, I didn't put, I, I thought I'd better include the Zoom people on the points, even though I apologize. Stop pointing. God's home is in us, says John 14, 23. We who embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, God, instead of temples, fills our lives by his spirit. Coming into repentance to our God, God resurrects us. So once we were dead in our sins, we are alive in Christ. He raises us to new life in him. 
as we read his Bible, as we take in his word, he uses it by his spirit to conform us, to be more like, to be changed into what he wants us to be, to be more like Jesus. He changes us. He gives us new directions. And that fills us hope because God is with us. Temples are gone. Have you noticed that? We have, don't build temples anymore. Mormons build temples. You know why that? They do that because they don't have a clue what they're doing. What the Lord has done, he's made his temple us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 makes it sure and reminds you that you are God's temple. We are being made into a temple together to worship God. But also you are a temple that God thought, I will leave, but I can't be gone forever, for I love a people. You are those people. If you trust in Jesus, if you know the sin is serious, but God's solution is far bigger. Sin is awful, but God's love conquers all. Let's pray. Well, Father. Uh, we realise uh, it's hard to, it's hard things to hear today. It's hard to hear about what happened. It's hard to hear the messages Ezekiel had to live, uh, live with and to give and passed on to us. But how important it is for us to hear that you are, you don't, you can't stand sin. You did something about it in Jesus. Help us to flee from sin. Be with us, we pray. Please mould us and shape us into the person you want us to be. We are so thankful that you gave us that start. You made us your people in Jesus. We pray that you would continue to work by your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks and praise that we are temples. As your temple, we pray that we would honour you in all that we do, all that we say and all that we think. But we are thankful that our Lord God, you have triumphed in the person of Jesus for us, your beloved people, and all your people throughout all ages and all places. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.